this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to kind of catch up, we're back in 1 Thessalonians. We took a, a few week hiatus as we uh, spent that time together remembering the, the celebration of the Lord and his triumphal entry and Palm Sunday and Easter last week, which was all just a wonderful time of remembrance and celebration. But if you might remember, we, we took about six weeks to look at six qualities of an effective witness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this text that we're living in, or we are, we are now moving to now is an important one because uh, we, we now realize why our witness is so important. And that is because we live in a fallen world, in a world that's often hostile to our faith. As we, as we look at the world around us, uh, many of you may have noticed, if you were a follower of Christ, that, 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 uh, that pressure seems to be mounting against those who simply want to profess faith in Jesus Christ in the broader culture. For example, there have been adoption agencies that have been shuttered simply because they will only give children because of, their, because of their commitment to the scripture, only give children to households with a father and a mother. Or um, we've heard stories about ministries, long-time ministries like InterVarsity or Crew, which have been kicked off of college campuses, campuses that uh, historically prided themselves in tolerance, prided themselves in openness to discussion. But when it comes to these Christian ministries, they've been booted off of many college campuses. Or we have the story of Lance Corporal Monifa Sterling. She was a Marine, and this is a picture of her. She was court-martialed in 2014 simply for having a Bible verse in her cubicle at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Or we have the story of Atlanta Fire Chief Kevin Cochran, uh, Kevin Cochran, at one point, was America's uh, top fire chief. He was a fire chief, I believe, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Then he became the fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia. And then during the Obama administration, he was made the top firefighting official in the country. And then once that was over, he was brought back into Atlanta, became the fire chief again, and he was fired in 2015 for self-publishing a book that, among many other things, advocated traditional Christian marriage. Fired, fired from his position. And so, for many of us, it feels as if the hostility toward those in the world around us against the Christian faith is growing. Neil Gorsuch, he's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court, during the period, during this lockdown period, in a particular case, I believe it was a case in New York State involving uh, synagogues and churches in New York State that sued the state because of the lockdown mandates. Neil Gorsuch, a member of the Supreme Court, concurred that churches were being unfairly targeted during the lockdowns. In fact, this is, this is what he wrote in his majority opinion, striking down the New York law. At least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it is always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. 
Who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? And so we notice that it's not just those of us who live in the Christian world who are beginning to feel the squeeze, but it's even those living in the secular world who can see what has been happening. Well, just as as we live in a world that's growing in hostility against Christ and the things of Christ, we need to remember that this isn't anything new, that Christians have been suffering through this for centuries, that, that what we have enjoyed in this country uh, has, has been rather unique, not just in the history of the world over the last 2,000 years. It's not just been unique for Christians in their experience, but it has also uh, been unique. It's unique in the world now, even today, where Christians are being persecuted terribly in, in uh, other parts of the world and so forth. But it's, there's something that we need to remember as we read this text together and as we think about the mounting pressure that we sometimes experience as being followers of Christ, and it is this. We never stand alone when we stand with Christ. We never stand alone when we stand with Christ. And there are three things that we have that will sustain us no matter what the future holds. Number one, number one, we have the gospel that changes us from the inside out. Number one, we have the gospel that changes us from the inside out. We notice in verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, um, one of the things that Paul begins with first as he looks at these believers in the city of Thessalonica is that he notices that when he went there, when he preached the gospel, when Silas was there, when he preached the gospel, in that city, they heard the word of God and they accepted it, not as the words of men, but what it is as the word of God. And this, uh, this, this brings us to something very important that we need to note, and that is, is that God's word is his chosen instrument to change the world. God's word is his chosen instrument to change the world. Look what Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, and then verse 17. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Want to be saved? We must call on the name of the Lord. We have, must ask God to save us. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, of course they can't. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Well, of course they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, they're not going to hear if no one preaches. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is a critical point. This is why... It's a priority for us in, in every study that you might be involved in the church, whether it be um, on Wednesday night, Awana, or Thursday night Bible study, or whether it be on Sunday morning, that we always, we always take time to meditate on the scriptures because we know that it's God's instrument to change the world. It's God's chosen instrument to change lives, and that's why we also support foreign missions. Foreign missions is critical. It's an important thing. If People don't hear the gospel. They're not going to come to know Jesus. Sometimes we want to make up in our head other explanations, and we want to say, well, maybe if they've never heard the gospel, maybe, maybe God will save them anyway. There is no indication in Scripture that that is the case. It is this, it is this 
passion that Paul had that people hear the gospel that, that drove him from one city to another city proclaiming the gospel. If, if, people come to, if people are saved if they don't hear the gospel, then what's the point of sending missionaries? They're better off if we don't. You see, the, the word of God is God's chosen instrument to change the world, and that's why missions are a priority for us as a congregation. We want people to come to know Jesus personally. We want them to have a relationship with Christ, and the word of God is his chosen instrument to do that. Secondly, he uses his word. He empowers his word to change lives. He empowers his word so that changes lives. Notice in verse 13, he's, he's, he talks about the word of God, which, is, which was at work in you believers, which was at work in you believers, verse 13. Now, the word there for work is almost always used in the New Testament. This form of the word work is almost always used in the New Testament to refer to supernatural activity. There's one occasion, at least one occasion, where, where it talks about the devil's work. But um, mostly it, it's, it's used in a way it talks about God's work. Here's an example from Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. You see, God empowers his work in our lives through his word. So if we are meditating on God's word, if we are hiding God's word in our hearts, God will take his word that's hidden there, maybe planted like a little seed, and it will begin to grow and grow and grow in our heart and our life and become like an oak tree and make us firm and stable in our faith and our walk with God. That's why it's so important that we keep, again, scripture central in everything that we do as a church, that we keep scripture central in our life personal lives, and that we keep Scripture central in our families' lives. It's important, parents, that you get your kids reading the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. This is, this is, this is something that God empowers and He works through in, in our lives. It's, it's sort of like uh, this idea of God empowering His work through His Word in our lives. Reminds me of like a, a father and his little daughter. And his little daughter maybe uh, might see a basketball hoop and she might see others around here taking shots and making the shots, and she wants to make one too. But she, she takes that basketball, she picks it up, she puts it on her head, and she tries to shoot it, and, and either it doesn't go above her hands or, or if it does just by a little bit, and she just doesn't have the strength to push the basketball up there, and she maybe gets a little sad. You ever see that? Maybe even start to tear up. She wants to make a basket too. So, so what does her dad do? He picks her up, right? He puts her over his head. She has the basketball in her hand. And then she drops it through the hoop. And what does she do? She celebrates, right? Like she's the one who made the basket. And how does the dad celebrate? He celebrates like she's the one who made the basket. As far as the dad's concerned, it was like he wasn't even there. He wasn't even present. He wasn't even part of it. He, but, he, but he was. He empowered it. He made it possible for her to do it. And that's the same thing in the Christian life. Everything that we do, everything that we do that's good spiritually, God empowers it. And he uses his word as a mechanism to do that. And if we want to be fruitful in the Christian life, we need to be in God's word. We need to make this a, a, a daily part of our life. 
First of all, we have this gospel that changes us from the inside out. When we come to know Christ, he changes us from the inside out. He does his work in and through us, and he makes us firm like that oak tree so that no matter what happens, no matter what winds assail us, he gives us the ability to stand. Number two, we have a spiritual family from everywhere that will remain faithful forever. We have a spiritual family from everywhere that will remain forever faithful. Well, where do we develop this? Well, we see this in the next several verses, starting with verse 14. Paul says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. It's amazing how there is, there is family resemblance, right? I mean, sometimes we look at families and we, we look at the different people in the family and we say, are you really related, right? You ever see that? Well, other times we look at families and say, you are the spitting image. Don't we see that? Ever see that? Here's, here's an example. Here is, a, here is a mother and a daughter, 36 years apart. How about that? Spitting image. Or how, check out this picture. Father and son, 30 years apart. You'd think they were the same kid, wouldn't you? Or here, here's one. Here is a father and a father grown up. The father on the left is 38. The father on the right is 32. Now wait a second for this next one. This next one is a scariest. I need to prepare you in a second. This is a mother and a son. Let's take a look at this. About the same age. Right there. You can tell who the son is by the mustache. Otherwise, otherwise they look exactly the same. Otherwise, they look exactly the same. Well, when there is family, there is family resemblance. Family resemblance. Remember. The Thessalonian believers mimic Paul, and Paul, by the way, imitated Christ, right? Paul imitated Christ, the Thessalonian believers mimic Paul, and then they became a pattern for all the other churches in the area. We talked about that. But this is something very interesting that he raises in verse 14. Paul sees a similarity between the Thessalonian church and the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea that are in Judea. Now, just want to mention for a second that sometimes people think, there's some people out there who think that uh, the reason why they resembled the churches in Judea was because the churches in Judea, that's, that's the Jewish church, and by the way, almost, you know, at this time, the, the vast majority of believers in the world when Paul wrote this letter were Jewish. They were Jewish. And the original church was the Judean church. That was the oldest church. And it was made up of Jewish people. So there are a lot of people who think, well, Paul went to uh, Thessalonica. He preached the gospel there. They came to faith. And then they sent a delegation to Judea. They made observations. How do the, how do the Jewish believers in Judea live? We're going to make these observations about them. We're going to come back and we're going to implement those things in, in Thessalonica. There's a problem with that view, though. The problem with the view is, is that it, there's not a long period of time between when Paul wrote this letter and when he was with them in the city. We know that Paul went from, he was, he was thrown out of Thessalonica, then he went to Berea, he was thrown out of there, he ended up in Athens, and finally he made his way to Corinth, and when he was in Corinth, he wrote this letter. 
Not much time has elapsed. And so um, it's, in my opinion, it's, that's likely not. And it's an argument from science, I don't, or silence. I don't know that for sure. But, but, but I think that there's something else that's operating here. The reason why they resembled the church in, Thessal- uh, the, in Judea was, be- was not because they went and they did an investigative study of the church in Judea. It was simply because the church in Judea had their eyes fixed on Jesus and the church in Thessalonica had their eyes fixed on Jesus. And as a result, there was a family resemblance in the way that they did things and the way that they lived was very similar. And so in that way, they resembled each other. You see, when we come to Christ, what he does is he aligns our values, he aligns our priorities, and this is what the world needs today. The world is so divided. Now, I would not recommend anyone spending their whole day watching the news. If you spend your whole day watching the news, I guarantee you that you're going to be very, very, you're going to be very angry a lot of the time, right? Right? All day long on the, on the news channels, there's punch and counterpunch. There's, there's, there's in the morning, there's my side giving their statement. Then in the afternoon, it's the other side giving their counterstatement. Then at night, we're waiting for the, the final kick from our side to, to go and, and beat the other guy. And, and, and uh, the way that our country is moving now, people are divided along all kinds of lines. People are divided along the lines of, of, um, of uh, economic status. People are divided along the lines of, of ethnic uh, background. People are divided along the lines of gender. And that's all you hear. And everybody is pitted against everybody else, and everybody's at each other's throats, and everybody hates each other. But here we have this church in Thessalonica, made up of Jews and Greeks, but I'm sure it had a very Greek flavor. And then you have this church in Judea, and it's made up of almost entirely Jewish believers. And guess what? They are more similar to each other than they are to their own people groups. Isn't that amazing? That's one of the things that I love about the church. You know, we can, we can, have, a, we can have people seated here in the church from, from different ethnic groups, from different economic backgrounds, some rich, some poor, sitting next to each other's, uh, their buddies. And you know, the, 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 the wealthy Christian and the poor Christian have more in common with each other than the wealthy Christian does with his, his wealthy neighbor who doesn't know the Lord. And, and, the, and, the, and the Christian who is poor has more in common with his wealthy Christian uh, friend than he does with, 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 the, with the poor of the world. It's because Christ, Christ is the one who tunes our eyes. He, we fix our eyes to him and we love him. And as a consequence, we love each other. And then in the church, we have this, this beautiful picture of what's, what, what, what happens when people are in right union with God. This gospel message is what joins us together. This gospel is what solves the divide that the world is making. And it's only through the gospel that our culture can be transformed and saved. Our culture doesn't have any answers. Our culture just says get angrier and angrier and angrier. And then when we come to the gospel, when we come to Christ, we have this supernatural thing that God gives called love where we are able to love our neighbor uh, regardless of what their background, regardless of how different they are from us. It is something that happens as 
a result of a relationship with him. And so Paul could see the similarity between the believers in Thessalonica and, and Judea, even though their backgrounds, even though their economic status, all of those things were so different. He saw that they were alike. There's nothing like it in all the world. The church is God's great gift to us. This just doesn't happen. What you're doing today, this time that you're spending in worship before the Lord and in fellowship with each other, it just doesn't happen in the world. And so, how are these, these, these Thessalonian believers and these Judean believers alike? Well, it's simply this. They prefer Christ over the world. They prefer Christ over the world they have a common suffering. We see this in verse 14. Suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Just as the, just as the Thessalonian believers suffered persecution, so did the Jewish believers in Judea. Paul speaks about what the Jewish believers in Judea endured. He says that their countrymen killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, verse 15. Drove us out again in verse 15. And then he says in verse 15, at the end of 15 through 16, displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The reality is, is that Paul is saying, you know what, what you're dealing with in Thessalonica is a lot like what the Jewish believers are dealing with in Judea, just as you have opponents who oppose the gospel, so they have opponents who oppose the gospel. Just as you have opponents who oppose Christ, they have opponents who oppose Christ. And he wanted them to be encouraged in that because you have this, you have this Judean church that was remaining faithful underneath all of that. And Paul could see the similarity as a result of the relationship with the Lord that the Lord carried them through it. Well, um, Jesus speaks about the same issue that Paul is, 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 has in the back of his mind. Paul is probably thinking about the words of Jesus. Notice in Matthew 23, 29 to 32, it says this, Woe to you, he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, who prided themselves on being the faithful ones who carried on the traditions of the remnant of faith throughout the Old Testament. You might remember that in the Old Testament there was always a faithful remnant, but then there were people who always opposed the things of God, even in Israel, and killed the prophets. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes are kind of like the um, uh, intellectual class. Um, they prided themselves on being faithful, and Jesus is pointing out that they are not faithful, that they're not in the line of the remnant, but in the line of those who reject the Lord. For instance, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered prophets. And what does he say? How does he show that they, they, are, um, they are the sons of those who murdered the prophets? And then he says, Jesus points us out in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Well, what is he referring to? They knew what he was talking about. What is he referring to? Jesus is saying, I'll give you proof that you're just like those who murdered the prophets, you scribes and Pharisees. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. How do they do that? They're going to be crucifying Jesus. That's how they'll fill up the measure 
of the sins of their fathers. And so Jesus was showing them that they were not who they thought they were. He was revealing it to them. And so um, it's important for us to remember at this juncture that Paul loved his people. Paul loved his countrymen, the writer of this book. Again, Paul was Jewish. He wrote in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. I want to ask who here might have this same kind of courage. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but this is... This is what Paul said. This is how much he loved his countrymen. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed Blessed forever. Amen. What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying that he loves his countrymen so much that he'd be willing to take their place in hell for those who reject Christ so that they could take his place in heaven. How many of you would love your countrymen that much? Your fellow Americans that much? How many of you would feel that way about those around you that you would be perfectly willing to switch place? Well, if you are, that shows that you love your countrymen. And and, uh, that he did explains why he was willing to go to the lengths that he did in order to bring the gospel to the known world at that time. That explains why he was willing to die for his faith at the hand of Nero. That explains everything, this deep love for his own countrymen, and it's a reflection of that passion for the Lord. Well, Satan has different methods by which he attacks his people. He attacks the church. The first is what we would call the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, in First John, it talks about that. It says that um, the spirit of the Antichrist now is in the world already, already. Now, John wrote in the first century, So even though there is going to be a final Antichrist to come, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, has been in the world, since the first century. And the word Antichrist simply means be against Christ. Um, And and John vividly describes in John chapter 13 what the spirit of the Antichrist is like. And actually, this isn't a description of of the Antichrist who will be to come, who will attack God's people and the church. Notice Revelation 13, 6 and 7. It says this, and this is a description of the Antichrist. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So the spirit of the Antichrist is something like what you saw in ISIS. Remember when ISIS was on the move? And ISIS attacked the church and ISIS killed thousands of Christians? Or uh, when you, uh, saw, you see throughout the Middle East where Christians are, are suffering uh, with blatant opposition, where they're not allowed to, to, to have a Bible, where they're not allowed to worship in public, where they are, they are opposed on every side, different parts of the world. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well, and that is one of the means by which Satan uses to attack God's people. But there's also another method he uses, and that's of false prophets, false prophets. And that, that's the second beast that's described in Revelation 13.11, and then uh, 13 and 14, we'll notice here, 
Uh, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Well, that's one of the first marks of a false prophet. A false prophet looks like a lamb. It has all of the makings of, of something that's genuine, of, that's real, but then it speaks like a dragon. It, it's calling people to follow the beast. And then we, we notice here, again, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, people, when people have a false prophet around, they say, this person has to be real. I mean, look at the things that they're doing. There's no doubt it has to come from God. But that's, that's part of their deception. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. And so the fundamental means that Satan uses to attack God's people is secondly, secondly, by means of the false prophet, false teaching that gets into the church, and then it works its way in and draws people away from the Lord. Well, uh, probably for most of our history as Americans, we've been contending with the second one of these. Not like the first one, like many people in Asia, in the Middle East, and Africa have been dealing with. But now we see an increased pressure. We see the new, we see, we see the first one starting to take his place among us in our culture. Well, what, do we, what else do we need to remember? First of all, the first thing that we need to remember is that we have the gospel that changes us from the inside out. We have a spiritual family from everywhere that will remain faithful forever, and we know that there's nothing that Satan can do, even with his tricks of the spirit of the Antichrist, his tricks with the, with the false prophets. There's nothing he can do to stamp out the true church. And then we need to remember that God is our defender. God is our defender. So Paul encourages them in a way that may seem strange to us. He points out, so as always, in verse 16, to fill up, the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But wrath has come upon them at last. Well, let's, let's just take a look at this very quickly. Number one, what does it mean to fill up to the measure of their sins? You might remember that Jesus actually said this about the Pharisees and the scribes. That upon killing him, crucifying him, they would be filling up the measure of their sins. What is, what is this referring to? Well, it's a common idea throughout the Bible. For example, we see it used in Genesis chapter 15. God went to, to Abraham and he said to Abraham, your descendants will sojourn for 400 years in Egypt because the, the cup of the Ammonites is not yet full. And that was, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty amazing statement. The iniquity, actually it says literally, the iniquity of the Am Amorites is not yet complete. This is an amazing statement, and the reason for that is because, because the people who lived in Canaan, that Israel was to occupy later, the promised land, were involved in some of the most evil practices that you could ever imagine. Uh, child sacrifice was a very common, common thing in Canaan. Uh, the, the, the grossest kinds of immorality that, that, could, that you could ever contemplate was rife there in that land. And God says that he is going to have his people spend 400 years in Egypt because the cup of wrath has not been filled to its full limit. Well, what does this tell us about God? Number one, it tells us that God is patient. 
It tells us that God is patient. God wants those people to come to repentance. And as you read the story, if you read the book of Joshua, for instance, you will see that some come to know him as Savior. But it also tells us that he is just. That while evil goes on in the world, there's going to come a day where God will bring it all under judgment because he is a just God. Because he is a good God, he brings it to an end. And so he says something that's difficult sometimes to hear. He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Well, why does, he, why does Paul bring this up to these Christians who are suffering in Thessalonica? To Christians who have read this book over and over again in the centuries who have suffered under the severest forms of persecution, places like Iraq, places like Syria, places like China, places like North Korea, places like Egypt. My grandfather was put in prison for preaching the gospel when he first went to South America. There's a pastor who's recently been put in prison in Canada. Why? Because he just wanted to have worship service like we do. So why does he bring all this up? It's to point out that God takes care of his people. God takes care of his people. He wants them to rejoice in that. And whatever suffering you might undergo as a believer in your faith, in your walk with Christ, he knows about it, and he's faithful. And so there's three, three things that, that we need to gather from this. Number one, don't be surprised, but, but rejoice. When you face, when you face maybe persecution in some form, maybe it's at school, maybe it's at work, maybe it's somewhere else, don't be surprised when it happens. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, remember, uh, uh, he said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But we also must rejoice. Why should we rejoice? Because it means that we're making a difference. It means that we're shining the light of Christ. It means that people are seeing it. It means that people are noticing it. And uh, it, it's sort of like when, when somebody's been exposed to the light, sometimes it hurts at first, and you want to test it. You want to you, you close your eyes, and, and maybe, 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 you know, like a, 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 a true Christian who's living out his faith every day, or her faith every day at work, maybe it seems too good to be true for some people, and they just want to test it and see if it's for real. And so they'll push, and they'll push, and they'll push, but the reason why that's happening is because they see something that's different about you. Now, the important thing we need to remember is, is that the only thing that ought to give them offense is the cross. We should never agitate people, right, unnecessarily. Sometimes Christians can be annoying. Sometimes Christians can be obnoxious. If we suffer for being obnoxious, that's not really, that doesn't count. Um, so um, let, let me give you an example, 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? This is what the Apostle Peter says. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If we're going to suffer for our faith, may it not be because we're just making ourselves an annoyance. May it be because we're living up genuine faith that honors Christ. Number two, number two, never seek revenge. Never seek revenge. This is what we read in Romans chapter 12, 19 through 21. It says this, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, 
But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. You really want to, be, you really want to know how, to, how your, your testimony will shine brightly in the world that we're living in today? Love those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for them. They treat you unkindly, and they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. And then they will see that there is something supernatural at work in you, and perhaps God will use that as a way to draw them to himself. And then finally, the third thing we notice is this. Remember, Christ is ultimately, Christ has already won, and you are ultimately safe with him. You're ultimately safe with him. Now, I shared this in the, in the first service, and I wasn't planning on talking about it today, and every time I say that, it makes faith's heart sink when I say that. So, but I want you to know, and this is one of the things that, that Paul wants us to understand, is that we are ultimately safe with Christ. So when I was um, a little boy, I grew up in an area in eastern North Carolina that was just the most idyllic, picturesque, wonderful place any child could ever grow up in. If any of you are from eastern North Carolina, you know it's true. And um, this neighborhood we lived in, it was on the edge of our town, surrounded by, by woods, deep, deep woods. And there were streams that ran through it, and there was a big lake that was part of it, and there was all kinds of wildlife in the lake. And I would spend a lot of my time in the woods with my friends, and we would just have a great time out there, and we would build forts, and we would dig holes, traps. And um, we would dig holes, and then we'd put sticks over the top and leaves over the top of that. I don't know if any of you, I mean, probably in a lot of ways, it's, it's similar to the experience of people who live here in Middleborough. We'd dig, we'd dig these, these, these holes, we would, we would play war, um, and uh, we, we just had a great time deep in these woods just about every single day. This was a, just a fun place. Well, as time went on in our particular neighborhood, it was growing, and, and, and where those deep woods were, some, some developers came along, and they put in roads back there, but there, there weren't any houses yet. And so me and my friends used to go and play in that area and, and uh, walk along the side of the roads, go into the woods, whatever it was. And then I remember one day I was walking with my friend, and I won't say his name, but I was walk, walking along with my very close friend. I was probably eight, nine, ten years old. And then all of a sudden there was a pickup truck with two guys in it that stopped. And they looked at us for a minute, and we were lock, walking along, and we kind of stopped, and we were looking back, and then all of a sudden, the two guys in the pickup truck jumped out of the pickup truck and took off after us. So um, my friend, we, we knew it. We just knew it that we couldn't stay together. We knew that we had to go apart. We knew those woods well. So my friend took off one way. I took off a different way. One of the guys took off after him. One of the guys took off after me. 
I found one of those little holes that I had dug and covered up with, with, with uh, branches and leaves, and I hid inside of that hole. And I remember as this guy was walking slowly through the woods because he knew that I was in there, he had been chasing me, and I remember in that hole looking out from underneath where all those leaves were and sticks were, I could see the guy slowly walking across looking for me. Well, he didn't see me, and he kept going, and finally he ended up going out to the road, getting into his truck, and the other guy came out from the woods on the other side. He didn't have my friend. And then they took off. I don't know what their intention was that day. But I can tell you how relieved I was when I saw my friend coming out of the woods from the other side. We went in two opposite directions and then we went home. And I can't tell you how good I felt when I got home. When I got home, I knew that I was safe. I knew that I was safe from whatever danger that was intended for me. And you know, we lived in a time, and a lot of you can identify with this, living in a time, and a lot of kids today can't identify it because there are crazy people like that around that we can't let kids do those things anymore. But there was a time in America where as a kid, you would, you would come home from school, you would stay out until it got dark. Your mom would go out on the porch and she'd call you in and you'd come in the house. And those were, those were sweet days. But I remember sometimes being a kid out there on those days, out playing, and then all of a sudden, before I knew it, so caught up in the playing that I was doing that all of a sudden it got dark. And then I realized I needed to get home, and then I would hear the sound of a, a truck. I would see a pickup truck or whatever it was, and all of a sudden, my first thought was, are those guys back after me again and I would take off and I ran as fast as I could and I would get to the house and I'd start pounding on the door of the house pounding on the door of the house and I can't tell you I can't tell you how how safe I felt the instant that I walked in the house I knew I knew that I was safe and you know the reality is is that we live in a world that can seem dangerous sometimes but you know where our real safe place is it's in the arms of Christ he loves us. He cares for us. He knows what we're going through. He knows the difficulties that we're facing, and he is there through all of it. And think about it. One day, one day, one day in the midst of this world that is so full of trouble and so full of hardship, one day the skies are going to open. He is going to descend with a trumpet blast he is going to come and he is going to set up his kingdom and we are going to be with him forever and ever and ever. There will be no wickedness anymore. There will be no danger anymore. And we will be with him forever safely in his arms. He is the one who loves us and cares for us and tenderly carries us along. And my question for you is whether or not you've come to a place where you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whether you've taken your life and you've put it into his hands, and you take all of those, those, those struggles, those fears, all of the, 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 the life that you've lived apart from him, and you turn from all of that, and you just place your trust in him, knowing that he's faithful, knowing that he cares for you, knowing that he loves you, and knowing that in his presence is where you'll be kept safe, truly safe, forever no matter what the world might do. I hope you've come to that place where you've trusted him. Let's pray. Father.